I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. I hope that you had those traditions that go on and on in families. Uh, my wife's family, uh, we try to gather, excuse me, we try to gather out at the family farmhouse, a farmstead uh, that has been in the family for centuries, centuries, that's, that's incorrect, has been in the family for over 100 years. It's called Drover's Inn. Her older brother has not only stayed on the farm, but has also expanded his home for hospitality. So we are all able to gather there. Thanksgiving is the wonderful time, and then the day after we have a hayride. We're on a farm, after all. So we have a hayride with the children. This year it was brisk. It was in the teens with the wind chill, but we still get on there and did it for the kids, you understand. And we went up to the top of the hill where the wind really blew, and we sang songs, and we were frozen by the time we got back. The bonfire was enjoyed only by a handful who went out there to cook hot dogs. And then everyone huddled inside where it was nice and warm. But there's so much laughter, the joy of catching up with each other, of being able to celebrate all that has transpired in the last year. It's a wonderful tradition, and I hope you have some of those in your home as well, and you were able to enjoy them this Thanksgiving. You know, it is wonderful to have that type of celebration on an annual basis, but it's even better if you have it on a weekly basis. I've shared before how we used to have uh, students from overseas living with us while they were coming to the States to learn English. A number of them were from Saudi Arabia, and they would tell us of how their extended families would get together every week, every week. They would gather, and one student told us how in his family, that would be 60 people who got together every week. Now, I don't know who cooks the meal in your home, but can you imagine cooking for 60 every week? That's quite an undertaking. And they enjoyed being together. But, you know, I can think back. I guess I'm now an old guy, but I can think back to when I was younger, and we always had Sunday dinner Did any of you ever have a real proper Sunday sit-down dinner? It was kind of classic. Yeah, a few people. It it was great because you always knew you were going to have a very good meal after the service, and we would enjoy that and then usually head out for a walk uh, while my father got a nap before the evening service because he was the preacher. It was always a wonderful time. Now, the reason I I mention all of that is because this psalm is a mixture of thanksgiving and of tradition. If you look, it's entitled, A Song for the Sabbath. And believe it or not, in in the Hebrew world, this was the first song, this was the first psalm that was always announced at the beginning of the week. Every Sunday, this was a psalm that would be read out in the temple. And so it's appropriate. But what's interesting is is not just that it's a psalm, but it's a song. It was expected to be sung. And there are so many good reasons for doing that. Now, it's an interesting interesting psalm because it can be divided up in so many different ways. Uh, Let me just give you a few. Matthew Henry, a very famous commentator, divided it into two. The ESV study notes have three. Calvin favored four, and the NIV study Bible has five. So 
You might as well study it and divide it up whatever way you'd like. The point is, it's so complex in the way that it pushes praise and gives so many different reasons for giving thanks to God that it really is one of those wonderful psalms that you can return to again and again and look one way and say, okay, I could see that in three. I could see that in four. I could see that in five. Tonight, I want us to look at it and to be able to just consider three. I won't break this down, but I'll just say for three different ways of looking at this psalm. First, a psalm for, for the foundation of thanksgiving. Second, for rethinking of thanksgiving. And third, the vitality of thanksgiving. Let me start off with just an, a short oversight of the whole psalm itself In the first verses, the psalmist encourages the praise of God through song because of his works, verses 4 and 5. However, we see the stupid man and fool of verse 6 cannot understand these works and therefore are doomed to destruction forever, and God's enemies shall perish and all evildoers be scattered, verses 7 and 9. But In verse 10, we see how the opposite has been the experience of the person who worships God or right. That is, knowing and living out the works of the first few verses that have given spiritual life that will flourish into old age, 14, so that he may declare his truth in word, song, and life, verse 15. If you've got that all, that's the end of the sermon. Um, But let's try to go through that. As we go through, the reason I want to do these three areas is because I think they catch it quite well, but I think it also gives us a challenge to be able to grow as this psalm instructs us to do so. So first, the foundation of thanks, the work, the works of the Lord. Now we can see from four and five that the works of the Lord have elicited or started this song of praise, yet the elements of God's character seen in verses one through three are not the spark for such an outburst, though that could be very possible. Rather, it's on the basis of the Lord's works. Now, what are those works? For some, God's magnificent hand in creation or directions through history encapsulates his works. However, I think it's the end of verse 7 that gives us the clue because it's the counterpoint to the foolish who ignore the examples of God's majesty and might, they are doomed to destruction forever. Why? Because though they might look at some broad idea of creation that we see all around us, or God's hand that has moved through history, they're failing to see the most important miracle, which is the one sitting beside you. You see, it's that God has worked in the lives of a sinner to bring to life and to give life that is a lifetime of satisfaction, a life that is filled with love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That is the works of God that is the foundation of this psalm of praise. And indeed, isn't that appropriate? 
That they want this to be a praise that we begin our week with, that we start with. No matter how bad the last week was, here's the coming week. We are the Lord's. He has redeemed us. He has saved us. We are his. As we come and confess our sins, we are free to be his alone. Not with entailments, not with entanglements, but his. That's the foundation of thanksgiving. And the thing is then, when we start to see that, we can start working backwards to see how all of those elements in verses one through three nourish our souls. Look, he says, give thanks. Of course we should give thanks. Sing praise to his name because we know his name. Think about this. We know his name. He could have withheld that from us, but we know his name, the name of the Most High, the name of Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, the one we call our Lord, our Savior, our Jesus. That is who we worship. And that's why we, we just don't have intellectual knowledge of his name. We know his name. We know who he is. Our, our lives reflect that. We wouldn't be alive spiritually if it wasn't for him. But, but look at verse 2. We know of his steadfast love. We know of his faithfulness. These indeed are the hallmarks of our life, or they should be. How quick we should be to wake up in the morning and to be able to say, Oh Lord, what a morning. Your steadfast love is promised towards me. What a wonderful day. My neighbor used to, uh, my neighbor was a bartender, and he used to say, Listen, any day above ground is a good day. I said, yeah, Joe, that's definitely a baseline. But you know what? I can top that. Any day is a wonderful day if you know that love is coming your way. (laughs) And he would say amen to that. (laughs) I don't think he quite understood, but okay. But isn't that true? If we understand that our God, the Most High, only has love for us. That's the solitary, single message he wants to make sure we hear every day. Oh, that we can start our days celebrating there. And then at the end of the day, we can recount on our bed all the ways that our God has been faithful. Do you ever start your days by asking the Lord to give you spiritual eyes to see all of his blessings throughout the day? It's a wonderful prayer because sometimes he will answer that and give you eyes to be able to see. And you'll be able to thank him just again and again and again, especially if you drive in Philadelphia. Lord, thank you for saving me there. Thank you for helping avoid that. Thank you I didn't wake up quite like that person did uh, or is trying to. Thank you for a cup of coffee. I mean, simple things we can ask 
and give praise to our God for knowing that the bedrock, the foundation, is on this relationship. We have been redeemed. We have been found valuable in the eyes of God Almighty, our God. That is where we really need to find it. That is where we need to have our soul nurtured each day. So Robert Alter, uh, who's a Hebrew scholar, I enjoy reading him. He says in verse 5, he amplifies the idea of God's thoughts, and he says, your designs, O God, are very deep. He doesn't know even the half of how well he caught that. They are very deep and very complex. If this is the foundation of our thanksgiving, can I ask a kind of touchy question? Was this how you celebrated your thanksgiving this year? I hate to say, but I've lived here so long that I often instinctively thank God for the bounty, the the amazing feast that is sitting before us. And I don't always think of saying, Lord, I thank you in the beginning for just this foundation of thanksgiving, of salvation. But then how more I can keep on going of building upon this, of being able to talk about your steadfast love, of like the, of like the saints of old, finding new names. Yahweh Rapha, the God who sees. Excuse me, Jehovah Rapha. Have you ever thought about giving God a new name? From your experience, because of your relationship with him, some way that he has especially ministered to you and drawn close to you, have you thought of creating a name, a special name, that you can call him and say thank you, thank you for this. You see, I I think that we need to get back to understanding that our, our baseline for thanksgiving is knowing who our God is. This loving God who has somehow found value in us. Not because of what we might become or what we might do. Not because we're eloquent in praise. No, just because he wants to make us his own. Just because he loves us. Now the reason that I ask that and say that's an odd question is because of the counterpoint. If you look at verses six and seven, they're very, very difficult to be able to consider. Look at verse six and seven. The stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they're doomed to destruction forever. The reason that it's so difficult is because we sometimes think that those who are not worshipers of our God do so because they're stupid, because they're foolish, because they just haven't thought it through. As as one 
One commentator, Enjoy Kidner, says, it's not for want of mental capacity, only with the use of it. But that's wrong. That's just wrong. Some people may believe crime pays, but despite appearances to the contrary, God prepares due punishment for the wicked. It is this unapparent system of justice that the bruised man is incapable of understanding. The reason that I mention it is because as punishment has a blind spot, so I think sometimes in righteousness we have a blind spot as well. You see, we sometimes consider that other people have not come to know Christ because, well, they just they haven't understood it. They haven't understood it for what it is. And, of course, we, we have. Oh, what an attitude. In arrogance, we somehow feel that we're better than other people who are not here tonight worshiping God, worshiping the true God. It's not because of lack of intellect. It's not because of lack of wealth. It is merely because of lack of opportunity that God has touched their lives and made them understood. And it's lack of our unfaithfulness because we have not shown the love of Christ appropriately. In other words, we get in the way of the gospel of Jesus Christ. People don't see Christ in us. They don't see the difference between us and anyone else. Shame on us. And it's something that we really, really, really need to pray that we can expunge from our lives. So, let us begin with this rejoicing, this joy that we find in celebrating our God, the foundation of our thanksgiving. Man is ephemeral. God reigns on high forever. Let us not forget that. Secondly, that there is the idea of the us and them. Again, I was alluding to this, but just to keep on going a bit further. You see, our question is, how do we respond to others? And this is where we need to rethink our thanksgiving, because it's not just that we should make this time pass, but rather, like the Hebrews, we should start our week with this and then actively participate in this. So, as we, as we start to come through The idea is that with prayer, we will start thinking through and preparing our hearts, our minds, so that we are are drilled, so that our our knee-jerk responses do not betray the real understanding, the real foundation of thanksgiving that we have in our God. It's, It's too easy for us to do that. It's too easy for us not to think ahead and as a result, be blindsided in life. This is why we can't stop just merely with the gospel. The basics of the gospel are wonderful. As Paul often says, that's the milk. Now get going with a real meal. Start getting the meat of the word. Not so that you can intellectually talk about God per se, but rather that you will be able to share him cogently as well as personally with others. 
We should be thinking, we should be dreaming of ways that we can share this with friends and family. We need to be able to look at our coworkers who are struggling with life itself, who may not even know that they're spiritual beings. How do we help spark that hunger within them? Let us be in dialogue with our God so that we might be able to start finding ways, being prepared and ready so when the Spirit of God opens that opportunity and moves our hearts, we're ready. We're so ready to be able to do that. I have a funny story. I might as well give it to you now. It's of a a young man in Texas who was a barber. This pastor kept coming in for a weekly haircut. Unheard of these days, but in those days, it happened a lot. And he would often come in and he would talk to the young man. And he'd say, do you ever know how important your work is? No, not really. Would you like to enlighten me? He said, yes. He said, part of what you do is you make people look good. And that is a wonderful thing to do. Have you ever thought of doing it on a spiritual level? <laughs> he nearly lost the band. He said, what are you talking about? He said, well, you know, there's a lot of people who don't even know they have souls. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you could help them just kind of shape up their souls? You see so many people on a regular basis. Have you ever thought of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with people? He said, I don't even know what you're talking about. You're telling me a different language. He said, well, let me tell you a little bit about it. One of the things that has changed my life is knowing Jesus Christ. He said, I only know him as a swear word. He said, oh, let me tell you about my Jesus. And every week, he came back and he started talking more about Jesus. And inevitably, this young barber came to know Jesus Christ. And so as the pastor kept coming back, doing discipleship with this young barber, they kept on studying the Bible The young barber would have his on the counter. The pastor would have his up on the side, and they'd have a wonderful time in the Word of God. Then the pastor said, you know, it's time for you to be able to share your faith. (gasps) He said, don't worry. He said, I'm here. Why don't don't you pray about who God would like you to share your faith with? Just choose one or two people. So a man came back. He said, you know, I think I know who God wants me to share the gospel with. He said, who? He said, I have one customer. He comes in here. He cusses up a storm. I think he needs God. I said, okay, that sounds like a tall order, but let's start praying about it. So he started praying. And after about a month of praying, he said, you know, Pastor, I really believe that this week is the week that I need to pray with this man. He said, great, when does he come in? He says, he comes in every Wednesday, faithful as can be, right on the dot of 10. He said, okay, listen, I'll come in Wednesday. We can have prayer just before he comes. I said, great. I'd really appreciate that. Wednesday rolled around. Nine o'clock, the pastor came in. They had prayer together. He said, listen, the question is, wait until God gives you the green light. He said, I will, pastor. So, sure enough, 10 a.m., this big old man comes in, takes off his big hat, puts it down puts down his big cigar with his hat. They give me a haircut. So he gets in the chair, 
starts giving me a haircut. Underneath, he's saying, Lord, just give me the green light. Just give me the green light. You know? He gets done with the whole haircut. No green light. He was feeling so disappointed. And then the man suddenly said, hey, you know what? Give me a shave, too. I'd like a nice, close shave. Okay. You know, so he gets them all lathered up. He strops up the straight-edge razor. He puts it on the man's neck, and he gets the green light. And he says to the man, are you prepared to die? (laughs) Now, that is a way to be able to introduce the gospel to someone, but wow, did it ever have effect. But you know what was interesting was the young man didn't share a life and death story. He shared his life and death story. He said, this Jesus changed my life, and now I only have eternal life in front of me. Would you like to know about it? And the man said, oh man, I thought you were talking about something different. He said, yeah, I guess you could understand it that way, but I really do want to tell you about something. And he led that man to Christ that very day. Are we ready to share Christ tomorrow morning, day after? How about Wednesday at 10 a.m.? We need to be prepared and ready. You see, this is what's so amazing about this psalm. It's for the Sabbath. Our Sabbath is today. Isn't this a wonderful way to start the week? Of thinking about the fact that we have received this foundation for thanksgiving that will just just give us a lift in our day and a walk, day by day. But now we can rethink it because suddenly... Isn't it a shame that the person that we're walking beside may not even know this foundation of thanksgiving, may have no idea of how to give thanks, may think that it's something as paltry as as grace for food instead of grace for life. Keller, Tim Keller from New York wrote, to us the word rest conveys mainly inactivity, but the, way, the main way the biblical Sabbath day, the main way the biblical Sabbath day renews strength and joy is through worship. Think about that. Does that kind of change the attitude for coming to a worship service? That suddenly you want to be reinvigorated through worship? And that brings us to the third point, the vitality of thanksgiving. Even as we begin this psalm in verse 4, asking why the author is glad and singing, we now see in verse 10 a new wave of personal rejoicing in stark contrast to those enemies of our God whom he will scatter. So we need to be able to, um, in verse 10, Behold, you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. Or as my Hebrew scholar friends suggest, I am soaked with fresh oil. Isn't that delightful? Verse 10 speaks of the horn, a symbol of strength, and being anointed, a symbol of refreshment. Only through worship are we restored to vigor from the exhaustion and burnout of seeking our own glory. Once again, 
It's because of our relationship with the Lord Most High. He boldly makes the Lord's exploits his own delight and inheritance. If God is on high forever, verse 8, he can raise my head on high, indeed my horn, verse 10, a symbol of power. And if his enemies are doomed, verse 9, so are mine, verse 11. It's not something to crow about. Rather, it is just a fact. And the soaking in fresh oil, well, that sounds exactly like an anointing used for renewal and consecration that we might serve our God. Now, building upon the symbolism, those who live with this vitality of thanksgiving are likened in verses 12 and 13 as flourishing palm trees and the legendary cedars of Lebanon. The palm tree is the embodiment of graceful erectedness, the cedar of strength and majesty. Their natural dignity and stability are enhanced here by the honored place they are pictured as occupying and the protection they accordingly enjoy. They are planted in the house of the Lord. And if we maintain fellowship with God over the years, verse 13, there is a kind of freshness that can come with increasing age. It's not the naivety of perpetual spiritual adolescence. It's the spiritual vigor that that grows only out of years of trusting God in prayer, coupled with the wisdom that comes from a treasure chest of rich memories, both sorrowful and sweet. Now this, however, this is not just for us to enjoy by ourselves, but rather this is the foundation of our thanks living, this that we might worship our God. And this goes back to those two words, right, at the beginning and at the end, to declare to show, to demonstrate that the Lord is upright is the crowning phrase that by our vitality we may not only sing but be in terms of Ephesians 1.12 to the praise of his glory. Kidner suggests that this is endless vitality. Recently, I've read some of Bernard of Clairvaux, the 11th century monk whose writings revitalized the Benedictine order and was supportive in the Reformation theology emphasis of sola fides. Let me just read a few quotes. The man who is wise will see his life more like a reservoir than a canal. The canal simultaneously pours out what it receives. The reservoir retains the water till it is full, then discharges the overflow without loss to itself. You squander and lose what is meant to be your own if, before you're totally permeated by the infusion of the Holy Spirit, you rashly proceed to pour out your unfulfilled self upon others. Isn't that good? Reservoir living requires believing that I too am worthy to receive sustenance from God. It's good food for thought. So that as we finish perhaps this season of thanksgiving in our nation, we will take up the Hebraic idea of having it as the foundation of our thanksgiving. Something that we will consider to rethink of celebrating on a daily basis in our lives. But also set forward as the goal 
finding satisfaction in our Lord. John Piper wrote a trilogy, and the foundational thought was God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Are you satisfied in God? Because that is the foundation not only for thanksgiving, but of worship itself. Isn't it false worship? If we come into a presence of our God who knows our very thoughts and we try to create worship out of our own efforts, rather than stopping and remembering all that we have received, the abundance we have received from our God, the spiritual life, the enrichment of that life on a regular daily basis, the joy of living out this life to his glory. Yes, that is the overflow of satisfaction in our soul. Clearly, enough it is right to give God thanks and sing his praise, but here we go further and call it good. Good, no doubt, in the sense that in love he values it as he values his creation, but also in the sense that it uplifts and liberates us. We are made glad by the works of God and by his ways in proportion as we give our minds and voices to express the wonders of them. Oh, may we do that well. Dear Heavenly Father, make this the hallmark of our lives that we are people of thanks. Thanks to you. Amen.